Hi, Latoya. It's How so nice to connect with you. I'm doing well. It's good to connect with you, too. And um, I often try to keep up with uh, what's happening with the Aurora Institute. I'm kind of on my own. I don't know if you know, but I took a new role in January of 2020, and I'm in a district now. That's terrific. That's yeah, so... I've been here 18 months. The only suggestion I have for anyone transitioning to a new role is to try not to do that um, prior to a pandemic. I tell people all the time I felt like I was adjusting really well January, February, and then COVID hit in March. And it's been a very interesting um interesting journey since then but I'm really enjoying it uh, it's been good and I've used a lots of things that I've learned um, through my work at the department and especially those things I learned um, when Aurora Institute was on a call absolutely we um because of COVID Susan we went um one-to-one -one, uh, it felt like overnight you know in grades 7 through 12 and we have an interesting setup in our district so we um, are one of four districts in York County, South Carolina. We have the largest land mass, but the smallest um, enrollment for the district. So uh, one western side of our district is fairly rural. We actually had someone provide a, a broadband for us. And one of the challenges we had um, last school year, because we did offer uh, an opportunity for students to learn virtually at home, um, is some of our students and actually some of our staff members live in areas where broadband, broadband was not available. There was no service provider in those areas. So that was a real challenge in thinking about how do we create um, equitable opportunities for students to learn and uh, what does that mean for our district. But a lot of progress has been made since then. So at some other point, I'd like to talk with you about that because we are embarking on um, one of our things in our, um, one of our goals uh, is about personalized learning in our new strategic change agenda. We want to really focus on that. And so I'd love to have some offline conversation with you about, about that at some point. I think we'd be a great uh, pilot district to try and do some really exciting things. We have a real visionary superintendent and it's, it's been exciting, but the podcast, I wanted to talk to you because I'm really, I always love listening to you. So whatever you write or whenever I hear you speak, um, I learn so much, but I'm really interested in, you know, I think COVID really pointed us to as, as if we didn't already know, we did, that we are so allegiant to an outdated industrial age, time-based, you know, thinking system of teaching and learning. Why do you think it's so, it was so hard for us to let go of that until we reached COVID and had to? Yeah, it's pretty remarkable when you look around the entire United States that we are still so tied to seat time yeah. Time defines how we earn credit, that seat time defines our teacher contracts, that seat time defines, uh, uh, you know, what a, what, a, what a subject, a successful completion of a subject is. It, it is really surprising. And when I've traveled around the globe and visited other education systems, especially developed systems that have been innovative. So when you go to schools, you see real student agencies, students owning their learning goals, doing interdisciplinary work, projects. And they ask me, 
what are the biggest policy barriers in the U.S.? And when I tell them it's seat time, they ask me, what is seat time? Wow. <laughs> right? Imagining, like, imagine a world where where every student basically has a, a personalized learning map over their K through 12 career, where they are actively building knowledge and skills through demonstrations of mastery and having functional equivalencies of earning credits. Yeah, earning credits is important. But the fact that we have our state policies, our, our local policies, so time to seat time, why is it? One, it, reinfor- it reinforces a lot of industrial era practices which are efficient. They, mm-hmm. they prioritize adult efficiency over ensuring that we are meeting the needs of each student. And, and that may be an easy thing to say, but if your whole system is organized just around you know, one subject for one hour for one with one teacher with one textbook, you know, at a time in one classroom, um, that may seem efficient, but it actually becomes really, really challenging to meet each student's needs. If instead we're looking at how do we create learning, how, you know, how do we organize our schools as hubs of learning and recognizing the unique talents and skills of each students and and meet students where they are and ensure that we are creating those supports for students to build that knowledge and skills based on their motivation, their, their interests, that all students are learners. It can really un- unleash um, you know, based on the learning sciences of how kids learn, how 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 they get inspired um, of doing real um, powerful personalized learning for every kid. Yeah, I, I, I say often, you know, if we could design a system where we're able to find the intersection of what children are passionate about and where they are able to demonstrate competency and mastery, uh, we would really have a, a brand new system on our hands. And like we've done in some cases is condition some of our brightest students who sit and calculate what is the lowest grade I can make on this assessment and still maintain this grade so that I then can keep my GPA at this level so that I can enter into this school or earn this scholarship. I mean, that's how um, conditioned I think we've we've made children uh, with our system. Right. It's almost our, our system, the way it's set up, like what does a diploma mean? It's got a list of classes with like a single, um, you know, basically you finish high school with a single GPA, which is sort of saying, what is, what is, you know, the kind of learning that you can do with almost the minimum effort to get what you need to do? It, it, it's almost like, what's the game that we're yep. setting the rules to? And it's like, it's not a good game. It's not resulting in good outcomes for students, for being ready for their futures, for careers, for, you know, future prosperity and health. So like, what does yeah. that look like to change the rules of the game? And and it, it means we've got to change the, the idea that, that 
time is fixed and learning is variable and go to how do we inspire um, powerful learning and create some flexibility in the time and place and ways that students learn that are tied to their passions in the real world. Yeah. So if you were to if you were to think through or um, give any uh, advice around those leaders, whether they be at a state level in terms of policy or a local level, even uh, think district superintendents, district leaders who want to capitalize on where we are post COVID and really embrace the future, including, you know, uh, personalized learning, competency based education. What are some of the things they should be focused on and what should they be prioritizing right now? I think the biggest priority for our leaders is to understand their role, not only as leaders in schools or leaders in districts or leaders in a state, but it's time to really listen to communities. So what did students experience? What did families experience or parents experience or caretakers in this time of COVID? Like, what did they learn? There was a heart research survey that came out last month that said 91% of parents wanted leaders to reimagine schools, to reimagine learning. So what from this experience we just went through, did you learn that was maybe positive in terms of flexibility or negative in terms of what? was transparently shown as like not working for your child and have a real community-based conversation, not just on what worked and what didn't work, but it's time to reimagine the purpose of education. What are your hopes? What are your vision? What is your vision? And I think that uh, communities that have been really engaging in those conversations very openly with, without any predetermined uh, notions of, of where this is going and end up in a place where they want learning personalized and, and what those, um, what does success look like? It, 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 it's a lot about having students Sorry about that. Um, it's a lot about having students that are, yes, building their academic knowledge, but more than ever have the skills they need to to navigate. If you have the skills to learn inside and outside of school, if you're working with a teacher or an advisor every day and setting goals and determining how it is you want to learn something and what you're interested in and what your you know assessment is going to look like, what kind of a, a, you know, evidence of that learning work project you're going to produce. Those schools were really set up to pivot quickly during COVID. And, and the question is, why are we creating that powerful student-centered learning every day? So if we can generate based on what we just experienced, all of us, on what parents want what what their hopes are, why parents are eager to get back to school, why some parents are eager to have still more options for remote learning and get to the heart of that. Maybe we can think differently about reimagining how school works and what it looks like rather than just snapping back to old traditional models. Yes, I think I think we all have to work um, very diligently and with intent 
empathy and, and deliberateness to not snap back to the old traditional model. You know, one of the most powerful things we did as we went through um, developing our new five-year strategic change agenda is we included students as a part of that uh, work and their voices, capturing their voice, what they want their learning experience to look like and to feel like. I mean, they, they describe a personalized learning experience where they have agency and ownership of their learning as what they desire. It was probably the most powerful experience we had in the room because we had community members there, parents, staff members, and the students' voices really um, called us to the carpet and said, we're demanding a different experience now. We don't want that the traditional experience anymore. Here's what we need. And let us tell you why this doesn't work for us anymore. I guess my question for you is, what do you see as implications for those districts who, okay, maybe you weren't able to pivot as quickly because you weren't operating inside of a student-centered system and maybe you are resistant or perhaps even fearful of embracing this new way of thinking about teaching and learning. What are the implications if we fail to embrace um, the future as, as what, for what we know education could be and should be and what parents want? Yeah, it's actually pretty deep. I, I was just on a conversation where the prompt question was, Will our education systems transform quickly enough to save the human race? Wow. <laughs> to save the human race. And that may feel like a stretch, but truly that's where conversations are globally. So I think for education systems where these systemic changes, this deep change in purpose of education and how we serve our youth and how we activate our students as powerful change makers, they, they want learning to be liberated anytime, any place. They want to be prepared for their futures and our communities are going to depend on it. It is really about the future sustainability of the health and prosperity of our communities and our youth and also our democracy. So, okay, what do, what do teachers do? What do principals and, and school leaders do? I think you find the parents that are open to the change. You find the educators that are open to the change. What's been so remarkable to me is how during this time of COVID, we did see so much creativity unleashed in teaching. There were teachers that just did some amazing, amazing new creative um, instruction. And it wasn't just tied to, I'm going to turn on my Zoom and do the same stand and deliver, but it really was about seeking new ways to do teaching and learning much more flexible. So when you find the teachers, they are going to be the designers of the future of learning, and they're going to be co-designing with students and hopefully parents and communities find that and start to think about ways you can create space for innovation and prototype. So there are um, districts around the country that are interested in setting up innovation zones that are interested in even using summer school opportunities as design prototypes for more flexible, personalized learning opportunities. And it really is this creativity um, and the will of people 
taking on the job of designing the future of learning in their own communities that are inspiring me. And, and this is how it gets started. Um, and it doesn't happen overnight. It's really hard work, but believing that it is possible to enable this new kind of anytime, anywhere learning that is personalized, that is mastery based, um, it's happening around the country. It's just happening in pockets. And this is a real opportunity for people that haven't gotten started to find new ways to get the people in their communities activated and, and start start piloting, start prototyping. You know, Susan, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I saw that many teachers felt a sense of um freedom in that um, they were able to design learning experiences in a more creative way um, and they did not feel the pressures that sometimes come with our traditional high-stakes standardized assessment, especially when assessments um, were waived in many states um, or administered but um, suspended in terms of um, school report cards or accountability systems. So with this new wave of teaching and learning, where do you see the future of high-stakes assessment and what's your perspective uh, on that? I think we really need to rethink our current frameworks for what we mean and how we do accountability and what we mean and how we do assessment. And, and when you think about each individual student um, really activating on their own learning and having data on what they know and can do every day, like most personalized competency-based learning environments have, you're gonna have a lot of information on where students are in their learning continuum. The way that we do accountability in the United States, which started in 2001, we have to remember why. It's because we had no information, on basic information on whether students could read, proficiently at grade level or do math proficiently at grade level. The question is we need transparency on student learning. We know we need transparency on student learning. We need to provide the resources to those students who need them the most. The question is the way that we're talking about doing accountability currently actually get us to where we need to go. And I think after 20 years, when we still have massive opportunity gaps, the answer is no, but let's like unpack what this accountability today looks like. It means giving students, um, based on their age and grade level, the comparable, the same test at the same time at the end of the school year. This is like the focus on comparability in federal law versus the focus that should be more on validity and reliability. So is a test valid and reliable for showing what a student can know and do? Our tests are comparable, which means the test items are comparable for every student every day. Basically, when we get these results, these results are not used in any way to help inform instruction for supporting that student. They're used to rank and sort schools and put measures on schools. And then the next year, that group of, say, third graders that you just tested moves on to fourth grade. The state standardized test the following year measures the third grade students with the same standardized tests 
And then policymakers talk about growth from one whole different cohort of students to the next to rank and sort the schools. None of this is aligned to doing what's right for student learning. Yeah. (laughs) And so it was like originally designed because states didn't have state standards, states didn't have data systems. They tried to do all these compromises. But what we have is an accountability system that is creating backwash effects on on poor, you know, instructional, outdated instructional models, fire hosing kids with content just for the test, instead of being focused on a system that supports true teaching and learning, high, high powerful teaching and learning, where we could actually have better data every single day in the process of learning. So we really need to reorient or thinking about what is the purpose of accountability and if it's for transparency about student learning, hey, there are other ways that we could achieve that. In It's 2021. No other industry thinks about quality assurance in the way that our K-12 system does accountability for so-called quality when it doesn't actually result in any immediate supports, immediate supports for each student. So there are better data models, and I really would encourage local communities to be thinking about not only what the purpose of education is, but what could true accountability, like what do you want your schools to be accountable for your youth, for our youth? What could reciprocity look like at the local level And then what should the state need and what should the federal government need? So this is like tied to accountability and it's also tied to what kind of tests are we using? And can we build capacity for performance assessment, which essentially says show Mm -hmm. students like that um, when students are demonstrating mastery, they're producing evidence of their work and high quality work and in the process of teaching and learning, we're getting better and better at um, ensuring that the way that we grade all students is fair, is reliable, is valid. And there's a whole science behind that. And we need to invest in our educators getting supported for assessing reliably our students in real time. After all, if our teachers don't know whether our students are learning or not, what are we actually doing? I couldn't agree more. I know um, as we work through our strategic change agenda, one of the things we worked to do is to talk as a community, as a school district community, about how we would define success for our children. And it really is about redefining that um, and thinking about that in new ways and not simply adopting um, that definition, that old definition of accountability, um, just because it's already defined, which is what I think happens. People default to the, the old way because unless they're forced to, sometimes it's really difficult for them to think of a new way. But we have a real opportunity post-COVID, I think, to take advantage of where we are. And I believe that those school districts in those states that do that are going to um, really set themselves up for a, a real thriving future. So um, as I was excited to just hear your thoughts on that. And I think um, I think you're exactly right. So I never like to end the podcast 
about asking, what's the best book you've read this year um, that you might recommend to our listeners? Oh, that's a that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, I love. Um, I'm trying to get the name of this. <laughs> there's there's a book um, that is on the history of how you create a competency based district, and it's called Delivering on the Promise. Okay. And it's the story of Chugach, Alaska from 1994 through current and how a remote rural district was able to really transform itself to create powerful, personalized and competency-based learning opportunities for every student. And it's beautifully written. Um, and it also highlights how, how they actually won the Baldridge Quality Award in 2001, the first K through 12 district district ever wow. to do this. And it's like if you read that, if you look at that, you really have a clear picture of what it looks like when you could have far better transparency on how students are doing, how teaching and learning can really be shifted and transform towards, you know, putting students at the center and how communities have so many assets for learning that when students can engage in solving problems in their communities, taking on areas of interest in their communities, that it really um, can change the whole paradigm in, in which K through 12 education operates. Wow, I'm going to definitely have to read that and uh, share that with my superintendent. Um, you know, it makes me think about, you know, what we could do for the issues with inequity in our country and in our education system if we were to take on an approach like that. Um, that would be remarkable. I never um, ever want to, um, make, to, to make sure that you don't know how much respect I have for you and admiration for the work you do. And uh, I've told all my folks here that the Aurora Institute is the best conference I've ever attended in my professional career. And I'm really hopeful that um, we'll be able to bring a team and join. Uh, We are a small rural district. So I'd love, like I said, I'd love sometime to talk to you about what we're trying to do here and think with you around that. And I'd love for you to meet our superintendent. because we're trying to do, which sounds like we're trying to do some of the things that that district you mentioned in that book is trying to do or, or has done. So it sounds very, um, very similar. So I think we could learn a lot from reading that and just from talking about how do you do that. We I think we've started, we made a good start because we, you know, the center of our strategic change agenda is about readiness. When children leave our system, we want them to be ready for college, career, whatever they choose. So that was a huge step because no longer were we just simply talking about a graduation rate, you know? So that's a lot of progress that we've made just to get people to be okay with us defining that as readiness. It's the first step, like really getting into what is the purpose and how do we redefine success and and make a promise, like a real commitment to every learner that you will have access to these opportunities to learn that will build up your knowledge skills like over the course of your lifetime and that your K through 12 education, your, your schools and your districts are there to create those those personalized 
pathways for you. And this has been such an honor. I, the feeling is is mutual. I have been so humbled to watch you and your service to the state, to your community, and I'm I'm just um, so pleased to join you and and in be with you in your leadership and service. Um, happy to help in any way I can and would, would love to engage in, in any way. Uh, I know that there's a lot of local wisdom and, and the work that you're doing. It's, well, there are lots of different schools and districts engaging on this work, but it's super important to be drawing on your own local wisdom and context. So my, my best wishes to you and happy to help in any way. Thank you so much, Susan. I appreciate you being on the podcast. I wasn't sure when I emailed you. I said, she's probably so busy. But I was just so thrilled when you said you would be on. Always happy to talk to you. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you. I was thrilled to get your email. And we we hope to see you at the uh, Aurora Symposium again. I know it'll be hybrid this year. And also um, face-to-face going forward. So take care and thank you, LaToya. Appreciate that. Have a good one. Bye-bye. You you too. Bye-bye. Until next time, be you, be true, be a hope builder. This is Leadership with LaToya for Leaders on the Grow.